All right, hello. Here we are at week four of our discussions of the elements of our lives that can help us get to a geula, a redemption. We learn the lessons of Pesach as we move our way in the calendar to Tisha B'Av with the hope that this year we'll experience Tisha B'Av differently. So after I discussed a little about the leaving of Egypt with the immediate shift into the Omer and then the Sfirat the Omer, the counting of the Omer, and then the both acceptance of the Torah and the Shtehalechem that sort of paralleled it, as we discussed in previous weeks. I want to talk about a Jewish country. And what is a Jewish country supposed to look like? Just very, very basic elements. And one of the, I think, important things to notice is that major and important rabbis have thought and continue to think that uh, we could make a halachic state of Israel. So Rav, uh, the first chief, Ashkenazi chief rabbi of the state of Israel, Rav Yitzchak Isaac Alevi Herzog, wrote about what a Medina would look like, what a state would look like. Roshal Yisraeli, I just saw a book over Shabbat of his, Amun HaYemini, where he also was invested in showing what the institutions of a state would look like, and perhaps closest to my heart, uh, the Tzitz Eliezer, who I just happened to like his chuvot uh, over and above almost all of the chuvot that I said. They're really, really great and impressive and all those things that he doesn't need me to say. In the 1950s, when he was a relatively young man, he was in his 30s, he, and he is usually thought of as being in the more Haredi part of the world, he wrote a book, uh, it's like a three-volume, small three-volume book, called Hilchot Medina, where he also was invested in showing that a state of Israel could certainly run Alpi Halacha by virtue of Halacha. So why well, I want to talk about some of the central institutions that are different than we're used to about a state, about a country, and think about that. And the first, and I think for many Jews, the most counterintuitive, because the world in which we live now, is the obligation to have a king. The Torah says very clearly that, in, it says in Parashat Shoftim, that we're supposed to put a king upon ourselves. It's well known that the Abarbanel says he thinks it's not true. The problem is that the, the Torah says the Jews have to have a king. But then, uh, then when in, in the book of Shmuel, when the Jews ask for a king, Shmuel responds as if they're doing something wrong. So how you deal with that, that's an important question. The Abarbanel's answer was that, in fact, it's not a requirement to have a king, and that's because the Torah says it as, when the Jews say, I want to have a king like all the other nations around me. So the Abarbanel says, I don't think that it was really an obligation. The problem for the Abarbanel is that the Rambam and the Ramban and all the other halachic authorities disagree. The Abarbanel is well known as a Jewish thinker. He's well known as a reader of Tanakh, including the Torah, but not so much as an halachic authority. So on the halachic side of it, it seems like the the consensus is, we'll get to one perhaps exception in a minute, but the, or a few minutes, the consensus seems to be that we are obligated to have a king. Now, I'm going to talk about how we know that. I'm going to give, talk about the Rambam and the Sefer Akinuch in a second, but just to sort of start our minds thinking, if we're obligated to have a king, the next step is to think about, A, I think, why or what's important, what's valuable about a king, and then B, especially for those of us coming from a democratic background, from the, the idea of a, of a monarchy can be very upsetting, especially I grew up in America, I grew up in the U.S., and there the memory of George III and his tyranny was still very much alive in America. So you think to yourself, why, how could it be that the Torah would require us to have a king? Uh, so that's the challenge that we have. So that's what I'm aiming to think about today. 
Why would the Torah want us to have a king? And then B, sorry, I meant to say that the second one, I forgot to say one or A. I think I said A, so that would be B. If I said one, this would be two. What is the value for us and how can we prepare ourselves for that value? I think about this often when we say in davening, Hashiva one of the things I think we might be praying for is the readiness and the willingness to subordinate ourselves to God's justice, to subordinate ourselves to a king. But to do that, we'd have to understand why would we do that? And then we'd have to think about how we would do that. So those are the steps I'm hoping for us to take together today. So first, in the Sefer HaMitzvot, in the Book of the Commandments of the Rambam, Asei Kufayin Gimel, Obligation 173, is to make sure we have a king over ourselves. And the Rambam writes that the Melech will will gather our nation together and lead us. And then he quotes the verse in Shoftim that I mentioned before, You have to make upon yourselves a king. So for the Rambam, one thing the king does is he unifies the nation. Now this is a thing I pointed out other times. I think others have pointed it out too. But I think it's remarkable to notice and remember that God wanted a Jewish nation that had many divisions in it. There were 12 Shvatim. That doesn't have to be 12 Shvatim in a theoretical nation. And remember that if you think about back to your Breshid, the tradition is that the Imahot, the mothers, knew there were going to be 12. And they were vying for whatever, the most, whatever, whatever. And that's why the, the Midrash is, or the Gemara says that, that Leah prayed for Dina to be a girl because she knew if, her, if she had another boy, her sister could only have one son, she'd be even less than the Shvachot. They knew how many Shvatim there were going to be. So 12 seems to be a number. The Ramban and Chumash says it as well. The 12 is the desired number. But that means that God wanted there to be a 12-part nation with 12 perspectives, with 12, meaning the tribes are not just, oh, you happen to be living in the north, you have to be living in the south. Each Shevet, each tribe has its own character. Each Shevet, I think it's worth pointing out, I haven't sort of heard this pointed out as much as I would think, each Shevet had its own Sanhedrin, and then there was a great Sanhedrin over them. But to be part of a tribe meant to be part of a tribe, it meant something. So the king's job is to bring all those together. Right? So that's an important piece of what the king does, according to the Rambam. And he quotes a Sifrei that says, the Sifrei points out that the Jewish people as a people, as a nation, were commanded three mitzvot when they came into Israel. Right? One is to have a king, one is to build a Beit HaMikdash, and then one is to destroy Amalek. But the Rambam's perspective, idea is that these come in order. First you have a king, then you build a Beit HaMikdash, then you completely wipe out Amalek. And then the Rambam in the Sefer Mitzvah points out another important inference from the verse. The verse is som tasim, that doubling of the obligation to place the king was taken to mean alecha. It's not only that you have a king, the aima of the king, the fear of the king is supposed to be upon us. This is something that if you watch politics today, because in some sense politics today, we have presidents, we have prime ministers, they're also leaders of their country. We'll see in the minute the Sefer Achinuch is going to say that one of the values of a king is that you always have to have somebody at the top. You always have to be the person for whom the buck stops here. But is that you, you regard that person with awe. I've recently been thinking about David Amelap in the years before he was king, and he was running away from Shaul, and he had opportunities to kill Shaul. And he reacts, he recoils from the idea. 
He says, this is Mashiach Hashem. This is the person who's been anointed by God. Right? And then when he eventually meets the Amaleki, who claims to be the one who killed Shaul, it's never clear to me if the Amaleki actually killed Shaul. But at least the Amaleki claims to have killed Shaul. And David kills him because even though Shaul was dying, he says, how could you have allowed yourself to kill the king of the Jewish people? So that Shetayim Vato Alecha, I think, is an important piece of the king puzzle. So as we're working our way to figuring out the role of a king, the value of a king, and, and think about how we get ourselves ready for a king, those are important pieces of the realm of his laying out for us. One, the king will be a unifying force. Two, uh, the king has jobs and our nation isn't full. It's the first step in building our full nation to get to the point that we build a Beit HaMikdash, to get to the point that we have the right to wipe out Amalek or the responsibility to wipe out Amalek. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. And then four or three, I forget the numbers, right? That his fear should be upon us, right? Right. So the Ram thinks that he's supposed to be the highest figure in our minds and that we put him above everything else. And the Ram writes, we're supposed to respect the king even more than the Navi, even more than the prophet, who is an institution we'll talk about, I think, next time, God willing. So that's even, and now the Navi brings, the prophet brings directly the word of God. So easily I could imagine saying the person who represents the literal word of God is going to be more significant to us then the king, and yet it's not true, right? And that's why the Gemara in Horiot, the Rabbin quotes, the Gemara in Horiot says, Melech Kodem Lenavi, the king that is bore before, and there's the honor we give him, the prophet. And anything the king commands us to do, as long as it doesn't contradict the Torah, that's an important qualification, but there's lots and lots of ways that it could not contradict the Torah and yet be very surprising. And not to English, but we have to listen. And if we don't, so disobedience, the Ramam understands the Torah to have said that disobedience to the king permits the king to kill the person. And when the king kills the person, he can kill him however he wants to, the Ramam thinks. As it says in Yoshua, the tribe city Yoshua, who has the sort of the role of a king, called Ishashayam Red, Picha Yumat, whoever will, that's not the whole, that's not the exact passage, I skipped some words in there, but whoever goes against Yoshua's commands will be put to death. And in the Ram says, anybody who rebels against the kingdom, doesn't matter who they are, the king is allowed to, right? Uh, the king is allowed to kill that person. So broad rights to enforce his will. Aside from enforcement, Jews have an obligation to listen. That's an important piece of that, right? So, you know, imagine a Jew who the king says, do something. The Jew thinks, I don't think that this is the right thing to do. It'll be more complicated. Let's imagine... The king gets upset. The king gets a ruling that says the king, this is within Torah law. And whoever it is thinks that their ruling says not within Torah law. They're going to think they're obligated to not to do it because it's not in Torah law. I'm not sure what you do with that. I think that's a hard question. But if it's within Torah law, but it's unpleasant. So I can easily imagine certainly people in our times who have this very individualistic view of the world would say, I'm not listening to that. And yet it's a mitzvah in the Torah. So that's something that I think we should be starting as we prepare for Tisha B'Av, which seems to be coming around again without Mashiach coming. I think it would be worth our while to prepare for that kind of required obedience and required awe. In Elchem in the Laws of Kings, in the first chapter, the Rambam says, however, so I don't want to exaggerate this, because the Rambam says, anybody who doesn't have fear of God, even though they're very wise, 
you don't appoint them to any of the major jobs in Israel. So that's step one. So it's inhabit the kingship as well. So, you know, if somebody's inhabiting the monarchy, you did not fit for the job. So there's no right of rebellion that I know of in Judaism, but there's a right not to listen because it's likely or plausible that many, many of the things that person says will not be Torah law. So if they're not Torah law, we don't have to listen anymore. So that'll be one of the ways that we can find our way out of or have wriggle under or have a problem with a problematic king. But then he writes, once David was anointed, he got the kingdom for him and his descendants. But it's only for the worthy of them. Because Hashem says to David, If your descendants uh, keep my covenant. But it's hereditary as well. So that's another challenge in our, right? I'm trying to set us up to try to start thinking about how we can prepare for a kingship. So now we've got a bunch of challenges. One is the king has power that we today are very leery of investing in one person. Two is that we're required not only to allow that person to have the power and listen to them if it doesn't contradict the Torah, we're required to have ima, to have awe and fear and to treat them with a kind of, of subservience that we just don't do today. And, and I should say, because I think this fully, and that I see countries in this world where there are autocrats and there are rulers who do seem to inspire that kind of subservience. And I think it often doesn't work out well. So that's a challenge. It's a challenge because even though the Raman tells us, and I think this is true, that the king is supposed to be somebody who has Yerat Shemayim's fear of heaven, it's very, very easy. You know, Lord Acton, when he says that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, I don't know that he's right. I'm not thinking he's right, but certainly many, many, many of the examples we've seen uh, would seem to suggest that that's at least the way to bet. So that's a challenge. Right? And then there's another challenge that's hereditary. I could have the greatest guy in the world who's not from Beis David, not from the tribe of Judah, not, not only the tribe of Judah, not from Beis David. And elsewhere, the Ram actually says, thinks that, it's not clear that which the Ram held in the end, that it has to be from the line of Shlomo, not just from the line, from the house of David. So that would be even more strong. You know, imagine I have a person from the house of David, but just have to be the line from Shlomo who's, who's, I don't know, tall and charismatic and fears God. And, and, and learns Torah, and is good at war, and understands the economy, can't be king. So what's that about? What's that hereditary piece about? So those are some challenges in the kingdom. Let's uh, get to it on a couple of challenges, and then we'll think some more about it. Sivir Akinov wants to explain why there's a mitzvah like this. Okay, so he doesn't put it in the mitzvah of having a king. He puts it in the mitzvah of having a nasi for the courts, right? Not to curse the nasi. So there he says, and he tells us in the king, in the midst of, of making a king, look back there. So he says, Mishor Mitzvah, um, the, the time, the reasons for this mitzvah, the fish He says, and it's a political statement that you think about today, and it's unclear what people think about this. He says, you can't have a successful group of people, a successful polity, a successful uh, political entity who don't have a person at the top. And why? Because people's opinions are different than each other. And what will happen is it'll break society apart as I fear we're seeing in many democracies today. You know, I remember many years ago when I read Plato's Republic and Plato has this idea that governments cycle from 
I think they still go from anarchy, right? So anarchy is complete chaos, and that's when you realize you need a leader. They go to monarchy, and from monarchy they go to oligarchy because one person is leading, but other people want to be leaders too. So they get enough power, then they have to share the power. And then from there you go to democracy. I think he says, I think that's the order. And then democracy, where the power is really, really spread out, devolves into chaos, right? Into anarchy, and then the cycle goes around again. The Sefer Kinnuch isn't far from that, and I don't know that he didn't read Plato, but he's certainly not far from that idea. He's saying if you don't have a, a single central leader, then people can't get together. Now, we today in many societies, you know, many democracies, think that we can balance that. We can have a leader, but that leader is not supreme. That leader is not everything, and therefore that'll help. And But it's unclear, because many of those places have a hard time uh, maintaining the cohesion of the society. And that's one of the things they're is pointing out. We're looking for how do we keep society together, respect the differences of different groups, while also keeping them overall together. And he's saying that's what a king does, right? That's what you have to keep one person's opinion, whether, and then he says, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And this is something that I don't know that we're sure of anymore either, although I think it's very interesting. And the Gemara says it also about, for example, the Sanhedrin, right? You're supposed to go to the court for certain things, and whatever they tell us we're required to do. And there it says, Yamin is small, and the Medrash is, and the Gemara is, even if they tell you about Yamin, that it's small or not small, that it's Yamin, whole discussions about that. But it seems like some, there are situations where a wrong answer is better than no answer or no ability to find an answer. So here, even if the king is wrong, now wrong, we've already seen in the Ramam, can't mean against the Torah. But if he's wrong, right, he thinks we have to fight inflation right now and it turns out we have to fight uh, and we, we, we'd be better off fighting unemployment. Let's say that's true. But that's better than if all that's going on inside you is fighting about it and you can't get together on anything. So in order for people to work together, that's what the king is for. That's the that's the Stephen Rapinoff's view of what the king is for. So I think it's an important piece of the puzzle. I'm not sure that it's the whole puzzle, but that's a very big piece of it, that the role of the king is to keep us together and to unify us around one thing. But notice that the important character trait there is that the people be willing to accept what the king has to say and live with it. Now, it's true that the Ramam gave the king the right to quell rebellion and to punish those who will go against his will, but it, that's always a problem. If the king has to spend his time quelling rebellions, imagine if there are, I don't know, 20 million Jews in Israel, right? And only a million of them are rebelling, but they're really rebelling. So if the king is forced to kill a million people, right? And that's the only way that he can maintain his kingship. He's allowed to do it. He'd be right to do it. He'd have the right to do it. And it would be terrible for the Jewish people. So when the Sefer Achinuch says, and that's, I think, part of what the Rambam talked about, that part of the way a community and a society has to work is there has to be a leader and people have to accept that leader. And that's a big challenge in many, many societies. Today, I'm, I'm staying away from being political, so I'm not naming names or talking about particular versions of it, because maybe you'll disagree with my, my particular example. So I don't care about the particular example. I care about the overall idea that without leadership that we're willing to follow, even if we disagree with it, and to know that leader has to follow the rules of the Torah, but that within the rules of the Torah, what the leader does, better to have a leader and to follow that leader, accept that leader, and see what happens. Now, remember that in a, in a democracy, you say to yourself, okay, fine. But it's only four years or six years, whatever the terms, or eight years, whatever the terms of office may be in that particular democracy. Here we're talking about hereditary, that means it's much longer, and yet the same idea is there.
So that's the picture of the Rambam and the Ramban agrees. I just don't have any Rambans for you here, but the Ramban agrees, the Rahinoch agrees. People like, so and some people quote the Avarbanel, as I said before, I think the Avarbanel should not be quoted in this discussion because I think I don't think he has a halachic right to say it. He might want to say it in terms of the easiest way to read Tanakh, and there's always that idea of, of reading Tanakh as it reads on its own, separate from our halachic reality. There's value in that. But I've also heard people, heard, I've heard people quote Ahamek Davar. Hamik Davar reads to some people, and I've read that, this Hamik Davar with other people, and I've tried to point it out to them, and they've said, no, I think it's still saying what I want to say, even though I'm pretty sure it's not. People think that Hamik Davar says voluntary whether you have a king or not, but he says something that I think is even much more interesting than that, and therefore, to me, much more uh, much more um, in tune with a halakhic view of the world. What he says is, that he's noting, noticing that the verse says, you're going to say to yourself, let me make a king. The Habeg Dabar says, It sounds like maybe it's not an absolute obligation to make a king. It's voluntary. Like elsewhere in the Torah, the Torah says, if you want to eat meat, you should, you have to, uh, you have to bring it. So in the mid, in the, in the, you have to, in the, in the time of the Midbar, you have to bring it to the, um, to the Mishkan and offer it, and then outside you only have to shech it, and you have to take care of it, and you have to get rid of its blood, whatever it is, but it's voluntary. The Hamik Dabar says, but we know that Chazal says it's a mitzvah. So he says, V'nira, V'mishum da'anagata medina mishtaneh imitnaeg apidat melucha, apidat am v'nivkarehem. He says, you know, the way you, countries work changes, depends on if they have a king, or if they have elected officials. Remember, the Hamik Dabar is living in the 1800s, he knows about democracies. And if they live among, if you have elected officials, if you have a Congress, it changes it. There are plenty of places in his time, in our time as well, where the idea of a king is so foreign that people wouldn't accept it. Now, I think in his time, you assume people wouldn't accept it. Once people wouldn't accept it, it was like a long-term project. So I think, unfortunately, in our times, we've seen how quickly people are willing to accept an autocrat, usually a very bad autocrat, and go from democracies. We've seen in the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, democracies willingly vote into power autocrats, and most of the people in that country happily follow the autocrat. So he's saying, but there are places where people are unwilling or unable to. And there are other places that without an autocrat, they're like, they're, they're foundering. And they're floundering and foundering. So this is where people think he's saying there is no mitzvah, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying this is one of those mitzvot where you can't force it. And when it comes to leading the community, there's a matter of life and death. And that pushes aside an obligation. So his point is, let's imagine that, you know, I, I imagine before a 20 million strong state of Israel, let's imagine that to insert the monarchy into the state of Israel, I used the example of a million people. You have to kill a million people. The Nitziv is saying, when it comes to fulfilling a mitzvah to say, an obligation in the Torah, you, really, you never have to kill people. Now that's interesting because I, the, when it comes to war, for example, I believe Achronim say, you can't say when it comes to war, you can't kill people. War is about killing people. So the Zavid is making the claim that the obligation to establish a monarchy is not one that's supposed to come with loss of life. I think he might also be saying 
not only that it's not supposed to come with lapis blood, he says it's not going to really work that way unless you're really willing to kill way too many people. So it's killing 5% of a country in order to put in a king too many? I think most of us would say yes. But even would, even those of us who might say, no, 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 it's worth the sacrifice because it's mentioned in the Torah, what about if it's 10 million people? I thought about this. I long time wrote a novel uh, and a sequel. The sequel is called The Making of the Messiah 2048. And one of the things that I sort of subtly tried to point out there was, let's imagine a country where 65% of people are fully Torah observant and care about halakha, and 35% aren't. Could you make that a halakhic state? Could you impose halakha on that state as the law of the land? I think the answer is no. Because even though majority rules in countries, and some countries today seem to be perfectly fine with the tyranny of the majority, which is, I think, a big, big mistake, it's a huge mistake here because what? You're going to take 35% of the country and show them a holiday Shabbos and put them to death? It, 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 it's hard to imagine. I think that's what he's saying about a king here. If people are dead set against kings, then it is a mitzvah. But when people are dissing against the mitzvah, what do you do about that? Do you just try to force them into the mitzvah? So there are Gemaras that would sound like that. That's his claim. So he says, And that's why the Torah doesn't say absolutely make a king. Because unless the people are ready to agree to a king, then you can't do it. And the reason they'll agree to a king is they'll look at the countries around them and they'll see the successful countries or the countries that work have kings. And they'll see the democracies eventually fall into chaos, is what I think he's saying. And therefore, you have to do it. Uh, and also, he says, you can't say there's no, but he, but he says, I'm sorry, I should have said it that way. You also can't say there's no mitzvah at all, because like with eating meat, with eating meat, there is no mitzvah at all, really. Right? When it says that you have to do shkrit if you want to eat meat, he says, you can't say that here. Why not? Because then why does the Torah say, V'yirashti v'shafta ba? So he says, because the Torah talks about the settling the land of Israel and the retaining the land of Israel in the context of a king, right? So it's clearly a mitzvah, but it's not a mitzvah that's in force until the people are ready for it. Now, people, I've said this to people, they say, okay, fine, so maybe we'll never be ready for it. We'll just have a democracy because we love democracy. We think democracy is the best and it'll be wonderful. But notice the flaw in that reasoning. When the Torah says... You need to have a king, and you ought to have a king. It's telling us the value. Now, we haven't yet figured out what that value is, right? We've, we started, Sefer Akinov said the value is that it'll keep us and help unify the people. I think that's an important piece of the value that we're missing. But if you don't see the value, then so, but the answer is you're missing something. So I want to point out two more Rambams, and that'll, or three more Rambams, that'll bring us to the end of our discussion today and talk about the king. So the first is, or it's a few Rambams, the Rambams of the second chapter of Malafi. He says, you have to honor the king very greatly and a great awe, as we saw in the Sefer Mitzvah already, right? So you can't ride on the king's horse. You can't sit in the king's place. You can't use any of the king's utensils. And when he dies, you have to burn it all, which sounds like, you know, I mean, if you think about, let's say, Buckingham Palace, they have a long history of objects. Here, every time there's a king, we're going to burn his objects. That's because it's about establishing the awe of the office. The king's wife never marries anybody else she was married to the king. You might think she married another king. No, every king is their own king. She's never allowed to marry anybody else. You're not allowed to see the king naked, right? Even when the king takes a haircut or the king goes to the bath, right? There's nobody around. There's one person around. He's not looking at the king naked. He's sort of, the, and that's a very crucial piece of it. Where So today, and especially in democracies, we like the idea that, you know, when Bill Clinton, and this is not a criticism, but when Bill played the saxophone on Arsenio Hall, everybody loved it. He was a man of the people. 
when George Herbert Walker Bush didn't know how to use a supermarket, didn't know what a barcode reader was. People were, were you know, were, were ready to leap all over him for how out of touch he was. But the point is, we're supposed to, we're supposed to have this awe of the king as being different than us, right? And this is not the right of the king to forego. A Not allow the king the right to forego because it's not the king we honor, it's the office of the king. And that's why the king's supposed to get a haircut every day. Now, why get a haircut every day? Get a haircut every day because it's not only the king's supposed to look good, the supposed to look the exact the same. And he's always got to wear beautiful clothing. And that's where the Pesach says, and everybody stands and bows before the king, even a Navi bows before the king. Although the king stands for the Kohen Gadol, the topic will not have time for it this time, right? And the king also has respect to studiers, but so I just want to, I, I, I've taken too much setting up the problem. I think what the Torah is telling us here and what the Allah is telling us here is A, it's true what the Savior of Kinnuk said, it's true to unify people. The Ramah said to unify people, we're going to respect their differences. You need to have a figure with real power at the top. Now that figure is not unlimited power because he's bound by Torah law. And that's part of the role of the Navi we'll talk about next time is to tell him when he's running afoul of God's will. I'm sorry, we'll get, next time we're going to talk about Amalek. We're in the future time, we'll talk about uh, the Beit HaMikdash, then we'll talk about the Navi. But but um, but the king's job, the king's role, he has a limit on it, but the king's role is to be there as the person who unifies the people and put them together on one plan. And the people's job, and I think this is an important job for people, is to remember that they're not in charge. To remember that it's not about them. It's whatever the king says. Now, this is a very hard thing to do because people like to have control. People like to have power. People like to think of themselves as important. And part of the king's role, I think, for the people, because remember, it's not about the person. It's about the office. It's to know there's somebody out there above them who's the real decider and not them. So I think that's a character trait that if we could work on, be ready for, you know, wanting God's rule over the world, wanting that the king. And that's why the hereditary part of it, to me, makes most sense as well. It's hereditary because it's, again, not about the person. It's not that we respect this person because of his quality. Certainly, the king is supposed to have those qualities. Remember what I said? He has to be fit for it. He has to be a Yerei Shammai. He has to have fear of heaven. We want him to be wise. We want him to be ready for the job. But it's not the reason he gets the job. He gets the job because he's born to it. And he gets the job because that's the way God wants the world to work. And we go along with it because it teaches us to submit to the king's will. And the more we learn to submit to the king's will, the more I think we also learn to submit to God's will. So that's what we have this time. For the, one of the ideal institutions of a Jewish polity is the king, who I think is a lesson in unity. And that to give unity, we have to give up some of our independence. And to recognize that it's important for people to have a sense of submission to somebody because it reminds us that we're not at the top. There's somebody above us and to live with that. So that's our thoughts for this time. Next time we'll talk about Amalek, then we'll talk about Abed Mikdash, then we'll talk about Anavi, and we'll be working our way to understanding the nature of the Jewish, uh, the ideal Jewish state. First step being the king at the top. See you next time. Thanks for joining.